Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, L.A. Kaufman. L.A. Kaufman is the author of a great new book called Direct Action, Protest and the Reinvention of American Radicalism. She has spent more than 30 years immersed in radical movements as a journalist, historian, organizer, and strategist. Her writings on grassroots activism and social movement history have been in The Nation, The Progressive, Mother Jones, Village Voice, and many others. She served as executive editor for the radical theory journal Socialist Review and as an award-winning national political columnist for SF Weekly, focusing on dissent and activism. Kaufman was the mobilizing coordinator for the massive February 15th, 2003 anti-war protest in New York City. I was there. I imagine many of you were there as well. She continued in this role through the years of major anti-war protests, including those that greeted the 2004 Republican National Convention. L.A. Kaufman, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Uh, it's wonderful to have you on. Uh, tell us a little bit about the the origins and the theme of this book, Direct Action, which really goes back to, to 1971 up through the present. Yeah, the book has been in the works for a, a kind of astoundingly long period of time. I actually started it in 1991, believe it or not, so book has been 25 years in the making, though I, of course, was not working on it every single year um, throughout that quarter century. Uh, but it started when I started feeling some significant shifts in the nature of grassroots organizing and the structure of radical movements. Uh, around the period uh, in, in the late 80s, early 90s, when ACT UP was at its height, and I started uh, really trying to weave together a single story out of the sprawling array of movements that I was seeing in the radical landscape. And that turned out to be a pretty challenging undertaking. So it was really only after many years of being immersed in movement and really more on history, more history unfolding, that it all came together. And I was able to pull together a single story that encompasses this huge array of grassroots movements that we've seen emerge at, at the tail end of the 60s, flourish over the inter- intervening decades, and that now are finding expression, of course, in the sprawling opposition to the new presidency. Yeah, indeed. And it's interesting to me, not just to learn bits of history that I didn't know, but that you really pull out particular actions as having been seminal for uh, movements that followed, and they're not necessarily the actions that are most well-remembered themselves, Um, beginning with the the May Day 1971 action in Washington, D.C., its its size and aggressiveness, uh, racially integrated and and inspiring of further actions, and yet not that well-known. Can you tell us something about it? Yeah, May Day 71 is uh, this extraordinary event that almost no one has heard about. There's a lot of events from the 60s that have been, from the 60s anti-war movement that have been, you know, heavily mythologized, like, you know, the the protests at the Democratic Convention in 1968, which actually only involved, you know, a, a really small number of people, but they have acquired this kind of mythic status. May Day 71 
uh, came kind of at the tail end of the movement when people were really growing frustrated that all the years of marching and protesting, resisting the draft, many other forms of, of organizing had not slowed the war, and in fact, uh, there had been a great escalation in the spring of 1970 with the bombing of Cambodia. So what people decided to do with this protest was to try to shut down the federal government through coordinated but decentralized nonviolent direct action. It wasn't an action where there was a leadership telling people where to go. It was organized that people chose targets and decided to use their, their bodies and whatever objects that they could, you know, bring out into the streets to try to paralyze the nation's capital. And what strikes me about it, there, it's, it's a really, it's a fascinating protest, and it's, I use it at, to open the book as kind of a set piece that introduces a whole bunch of themes about organizing in subsequent decades. But the thing that stands out the most strongly about it, it was an extremely unpopular protest. It was unruly. I mean, it was nonviolent, but it was nonviolent that it, it was a definition of nonviolence that included, you know, letting the airs out of the tires of cars or dragging, you know, newspaper boxes into the street um, to create to create barricades. Um, it was extremely controversial, extremely unpopular, and it worked. There's there's evidence that it so freaked out the Nixon administration and, and brought the specter of revolution to their doorstep uh, that it hastened the withdrawal from Vietnam. Um, so uh, when I look through the many years of subsequent protests and when I think about the organizing now, I, I always keep this framework in mind that, that a lot of times throughout our history, the movements that have accomplished the most have been the ones that were willing to be unpopular. And, and that evidence is in the form of White House discussions that we now have transcripts, or what sort of yes, evidence? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's, um, you know, historians have have uh, you know mined the the rich trove of transcripts from the White House uh, to to and interviews with subsequent White House aides to say that it was one of the things that really made them think they had to find an exit strategy that um you know that they 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 feared they feared revolution they the the idea of of you know in, in a lot of ways it was symbolic of course nobody was going to actually shut down the federal government even if they managed to stall the traffic in dc you know that's not going to stop the delivery of mail or the dropping of bombs i mean it was all you know the the disruption was always more symbolic than actual but it was it was it was really profoundly scary to the nixon white house profoundly scary while remaining profoundly nonviolent, which I think was really a powerful combination. Yeah, nonviolent toward living things, <laughs> violent toward newspaper boxes. Yeah, yeah. newspaper boxes <laughs> can take it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that the book is an incredible uh, resource of of tactics and and knowledge of history, and it goes through the '76 uh, protests in Seabrook, New Hampshire, and the '84 Pledge of Resistance, and the in 1987 action at the CIA, and the work of groups like ACT UP. And uh, and of course the Seattle WTO etc. But I, I want to touch on as many of these as we can. But I want to jump ahead to 2003, where you raise the the possibility that resistance to the invasion of Iraq might have been more effective had it been more confrontational. Um, can you describe exactly what you mean and and what makes you think that? Well, I think anyone 
anyone who was deeply involved in those that extraordinary day of protest that took place on uh, you know almost exactly 14 years ago on February 15th, 2003, um, it, it was uh, it, it was the single largest day of protest in world history. It still is. There were protests uh, in I believe 792 cities and towns around the world on every continent. And the protests in the United, and many of them were were absolutely massive, including the New York one, which was which was enormous. Um, and yet, uh, despite having brought this incredible number of people into the streets to all say in a single voice no to the Bush's war plans, the war, of course, proceeded uh, unabated. It, uh, Bush kind of shrugged off the protests, um, uh, compared them to a focus group. And it was a really uh, dispiriting moment for many people who had been involved in organizing the protests, but also a moment to really reflect on what protests, what, what big mobilizations like that do and don't accomplish. You know, we tend to have this model in our head, which is already mythologized, of the that's kind of based on the 1963 March on Washington, and this oversimplified idea like people came together, they expressed the conscience of the nation in huge numbers, and that in turn led to the passage of civil rights legislation. Um, mass mobilizations rarely work that well as pressure tactics. They work quite well as movement-building tactics, and they work you know they can they do a lot of important political work, but in themselves, they sometimes end up just demonstrating the scale of our powerlessness. That was the way it felt in a lot of mass mobilizations in the eighties. Um, now the temper of the times in two thousand three, there had you know after nine eleven, there had been um, you know there was already an escalation of police response to protest after the Seattle WTO in response to the the um, the real upsurge of the global justice movement. And after 9-11, a real chill descended on, um, on the left. And people simply weren't organizing confrontational, disruptive protests, um, with the exception direct action to stop the war in San Francisco organized a whole bunch of, of street shutdowns. Um, but, you know, there was, a moment, there was a moment when the big coalition that organized the huge protest in, in New York had to make a choice. We were told we couldn't march. And we had to make a decision, were we going to march anyway or not? I was on the side who thought that we should have marched anyway, and that we could have had people on the front lines who were willing to risk arrest if that was what it was going to take um, in order for people to take the streets and, and, and offer a stronger statement than, than standing in the pens that had been set up by the police to contain us. Yeah. Um, it's impossible to say whether if people had really broken out of the constraints on protest to show, uh, you know, a strong nationwide showing of resistance, not just opposition, if it would have changed the course of the ensuing weeks and the conduct of the war. Um, I don't, you know, I don't want to second guess what we did, uh, but but it, the, the feeling of powerless was so extraordinary, and it was a feeling that we hadn't really, we had pulled out numbers, but we hadn't really used all the tools in our toolbox, and we hadn't really used the tools that sent the strongest messages. Yeah. We, we're speaking with L.A. Kaufman, whose book is Direct Action, Protest and the Reinvention of American 
radicalism. Um, I should note that when people claim that the recent Women's March broke uh, the records, uh, th- those are national claims, not global. So this single day of action still holds that uh, that title for global biggest uh, action that you that you mentioned. Um, but I, I, I think you know there are there are those who make the argument that the the war opposition did accomplish something that it brought nations around the world against the war the un to vote against the war making it illegal rather than having that humanitarian sanction uh and that it built opposition that continued for a decade uh, leading to the situation in 2013 where Congress members were saying, I'm not going to vote to bomb Syria because I'm not going to vote for another Iraq because Iraq had become right. this, this you know, curse that, you know, stopped Hillary twice and so forth. Um, is there something to that or, or was it not just the marches but other actions that accomplished uh, those changes? Right. Well, I mean, the movement was... Um you know, lasted for many years, used many tactics and many approaches, and I and I think you're absolutely right, David, that it, it accomplished a lot of a lot of things. Another thing that I would point to when I um, went to Ferguson um, after the uprising there and really started interviewing people in depth about how how it happened that you know so many times when there are the kinds of uprisings that that might be characterized as a riot. They kind of happen and burn out, uh, as opposed to doing what happened in Ferguson, where that uprising fed into what we now know as the movement for black lives and the National Black Lives Matter movement. And when I looked at that work, I could look back and see relationships that were built in the anti-war movement across the long-standing divisions of race that have been crippling grassroots movements for decades. Um, and see how those came to fruition in in helping strengthen the resistance and the organizing in Ferguson many years later. Yeah. So, you know, these these movements sometimes um, sometimes the the effects are um, are you know outside of the issue focus of a particular movement. Sometimes they're many years later. It can be, um, you know, it, it it's it. You, the fact that we didn't stop the war doesn't mean that it wasn't worth doing all the work that took place. Um, the anti-war movement absolutely, um, you know, built and strengthened cross-racial networks of resistance that it were then called on in many other contexts later. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and the book is excellent on the behind-the-scenes work in Ferguson of organizers to bring in uh, supplies and resources and activists from outside Ferguson to strengthen uh, what was happening more or less spontaneously. But uh, I, I think, uh, y- you know, some of us were on organizing calls with UFPJ for several years, pushing uh, unsuccessfully for um, more aggressive strategies outside of permits and so forth. And there was one year when, you know, there was always actions on the anniversary of the attack on Baghdad. And there was one year in D.C. where the plan was sort of of a mixture. We will have permitted rallies in parks and blocking of streets and uh, dancing in the streets and, you know, blocking of doors of weapons profiteers buildings and and so forth and it turned out i thought to be a rather useful combination in that when people saw that there had apparently been an order not to arrest anybody and so people were dragged out of the streets and then danced right back into them and it became a joke 
people who ordinarily wouldn't have engaged in nonviolent resistance, uh, you know, left the, the, the safe rallies in the parks and went into the streets. Um, and then we never tried that again in the, sub- in the subsequent years. What, do, do you recall that at all? And is there any sort of uh, other examples of that model of combining, uh, of combining two approaches? Um, yeah, I, I missed that particular one. That was um, after uh, I had left UFTJ, um, and so I missed that particular one. People still talk about that as having been a, a really powerful day of action. I mean, I think that that model has been used uh, in a lot of different contexts of having. You know, it was even it was even used on inauguration day of having some spaces where there are are permitted rallies or permitted marches so that everyone can feel comfortable going there, no matter if they're bringing their kids or what their immigration status is, or if they've got an open warrant for jumping a turnstile or, you know, or whatever, whatever thing you might have in your life that makes you really not able to, to risk any kind of engagement with the police. Um, you know, that those kind of spaces as a, as a, as a safe uh, container while people do more interesting uh, more disruptive kinds of actions in other places and time. So that, um, you know, playing with that combination of how to have a day that is multi-tactical, but where there's, um, you know, different levels of risk uh, are, are geographically separated, that's something people have been playing with, um, I mean, a lot, well, you know, going back uh, in Seattle, there that was one of the models that was used at the Seattle WTO protest. And I think um, now, as we have so many people interested in taking action who are doing so for the first time, or maybe now they're up to the second or third time since people have been to a lot of protests in recent weeks, those kind of models are going to be really powerful because they, they make a place... Um, they make a place for stronger forms of resistance without privileging it so much that other people can't be part of the day. Yeah, I, I I am struck. You know, I was at the time of 9/11 working for a group called Acorn that used direct action. You know, every day of the year for the whole period that that this book covers and. Uh, that on that day, it was just universally understood that now nobody can do anything, uh, and and I couldn't understand it. it. seemed It seemed ridiculous to me. Why in the heck not? You know, I mean, we were gonna we were gonna accomplish all sorts of great legislation in Washington. You know, in the coming weeks, and nope, it's everything's off. And uh, I I wonder if there's anything we can do as as activists or educators to 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 change that. You know, next time, God. Forbid, there's something resembling 9/11 in some way. Does do, do all good movements have to be shut down, uh, or can we can we sort of prepare ourselves not to do that? Do you mean shut down in response, uh, you know, after the 9/11 attacks? Right or... after, after the 9/11 attacks, all good progressive causes and activist movements sort of said nothing good is permissible now. We must all go crawl under our beds and wait, and uh, there will be a day when it's more appropriate to challenge our government. But for the moment, we must bow down before its most tyrannical uh, impulses and let everything roll over us. Yeah, I mean, that's not how I remember the period right after 9-11. I was in, in New York. I'm not sure where you were. I mean, I, I remember, you know, I remember thousands of people in Union Square. I remember all the messages that people wrote in, the, in talk on the 
the square and all the signs that people had. Um, and I, I remember, um, I remember it wasn't so much that, that movements went home. It was that between the very real grief that, that, that everyone was feeling for the slaughter that had taken place in our city, thousands of people had been, of people had been just murdered in our city, um, there, there was a sense that the kind of protest that had preceded that moment no longer worked. A lot of what the spirit of the global justice movement had been was this idea of a carnival against capital, festive resistance in the street. And there was a real shifting of gears. You know, people who had um, been, you know, trying to, uh, you know, synthesize party and protest and music and culture in the streets in this in that kind of heavy atmosphere after 9-11. It was very, very difficult to mobilize. And it wasn't so much that the organization folded up as that the, the, the it was kind of at the level of the foot soldiers. It was the level, you know, right. it, it was it, it, people, it, you know, the, 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 the fear and the grief allowed people um, to be more passive than they might have been otherwise. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering, uh, you know, if we can sort of learn to experience the grief that the U.S. military causes all the time in distant places uh, and not be shut down uh, by grief when, uh, you know, a bit of it happens to hit the United States, but in fact escalate our resistance to the the destruction. Um, Right. I mean, sometimes with organizing, you know, there's something just ineffable about, you know, the moments when people feel moved to act and when they don't. There's something, you know, after having been doing this for many years, you know, there's, there are these moments, um, uh, Mark and Paul Engler, who wrote the wonderful uh, recent book called This is an Uprising, called yeah. them, you know, the movements yeah. of the moments of the whirlwind, when, yeah. um, uh, when people, you know, are, are, are suddenly in huge numbers moved to, to step outside their comfort zone, do more than they normally would, um, you know, the period after the election in November and the inauguration felt a little bit to me like that post-9-11 feeling. I went to a lot of protests, and they were all small, and they were all depressing. And there was something about the Women's March. I I didn't predict this in advance, but there was something about the Women's March that just, like, changed the alchemy. It was this moment of you know, a kind of shedding of the fear and the grief um, and the the paralysis after the election and kind of bursting out into action that was uh, so heartening and so powerful. Um, you know, some, there's something about these things that you can't quite, you know, you, you, know you, you organize and you do what you can to, to make things happen as an organizer, but there's there's certain things that you can't plan for that, that, you know, again, I'm kind of reach for these metaphors like alchemy or something that, right. that just happens, a kind of magic, uh, collective magic. Um, fortunately, we're in one of those periods where people are, thank goodness, you know, stepping up and doing more and taking risks um, because it's obviously desperately and urgently needed. Yeah, I wonder, uh, are you familiar with uh, a book called Party in the Streets that looks at the partisan nature of the anti-war movement in the past decade? 
Um, no, I'm this, not familiar with that. This book. is a, a study done by a couple of professors who went to all the anti-war actions over the past decade or so and asked people all sorts of questions in surveys, and they came up with the idea that the biggest mobilizer in you know oh three oh four was identification between anti-war and Democratic Party, uh, and you brought in lots of members of the Democratic Party, which was also the biggest reason why around oh seven oh eight oh nine uh, the mobilizations got much smaller and the funding dried up and so forth. Uh, and so I, I, you know, as as someone who would love to see an anti-war movement that wasn't, you know, anti-Republican wars, but just anti-wars and able to sustain itself as faces change in the White House, I I, I was more encouraged by protests at, at airports uh, that were spontaneous than by you know, the Women's March that, you know, will never say a word against war and had Debbie Wasserman Schultz up there on the stage in D.C. and so forth because of the of the partisan handicap. What are, what are your thoughts on that? See, when I look at the Women's March, what strikes me about it is that it was mostly self-mobilized. I mean, they didn't, you know, they didn't have uh, an infrastructure or an organ, a pre-existing organizational infrastructure that then brought the march into place. They they assembled the organizational infrastructure in the course of mobilizing, and most of what people did uh, was to self-mobilize to get there. When you were there in D.C., I mean, it was this combination of the you know the kind of chills down your spine of realizing you know, after having been at February 15, 2003, and many other huge protests, that this was bigger than any of them. Yeah. But also, you know, I don't think I've ever seen such a high percentage of handmade signs in a crowd, right? This is people who, like, made their own signs, organized their own groups. There weren't, like, big... Yes, there were some buses that came and so forth, but there weren't the kind of bus operations and marshals and all this kind of infrastructure that... that I mean, nuts and bolts infrastructure... That um, that you know, people who've who've done these kind of mobilizations in the past are used to seeing. So I don't. I actually think that there's a lot of continuity and similarity between uh, just a difference in scale between the women's march and the airport protests, which were also, um, you know, obviously they weren't completely self-organized. There were long-standing immigrant rights groups who put out the call to action very early on. They've been tracking the issue. Who. Um, secured the space at JFK, um, you know, who helped uh, reach out to the legal team. But it was that, that, that similar sense of people self-mobilizing in response to a crisis. And, um, uh, you know, there it wasn't even handmade signs because nobody had time to make a sign. There was a, there was a package of markers and people were salvaging cardboard from the garbage cans. And that, you know, that's what the signage was at the beginning of the protest there. Um, so there, so, you know, I don't, I, I tend to not look at like who's on the stage as, um, where the meaning of a protest lies. I'm much more interested in what networks got mobilized, what groups got engaged, you know, what organizing happened behind the scene rather than who's up there speaking and, um, uh, supposedly representing the event. So, um, so yeah, I wouldn't, I don't, I don't 
see the same contrast between the two that you do. Yeah, well, I certainly see much that's encouraging and uh, would much rather see people turn out for any sort of uh, action, even if I'd like to, to tweak it a little bit. Uh, there are incredible resources uh, and guides to making things better as we go forward in this history. Direct Action is the title, Protest and the Reinvention of American Radicalism by L.A. Kaufman. We'll have info and links up at talknationradio.org. L.A. Kaufman, thank you very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you so much for having me, David. It's been a pleasure. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.